Well, welcome and good morning. It is always a pleasure to be here uh, and to open God's Word with you. Um, it feels like it's been uh, a little while uh, since uh, I got to, to preach a little bit, but we are continuing in this series in First John that I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed being in. So if you would, if you're already open there, then you're in, you're in good company. If you're not, go ahead and open your Bibles and we will uh, bow with, in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get to be here today, that we get to gather together as your church, that we get to lift up your name in worship, in songs, in praise, and in the preaching of Scripture. Father, we, we recognize that this is a privilege that uh, we get to enjoy, that there are many who uh, meet in secret uh, around the world or, or meet because uh, you commanded them to, but lives may be threatened for doing so or freedoms may be threatened. So, Lord, we do recognize this wonderful privilege that we have to openly gather and to openly sing and to sing loudly your praise. Now, Father, as we enter into this next phase of worship where we get to open your word and to hear the message that you have from it. I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to understand these things, that you would cause me to decrease so that Christ may increase. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. So as I said, we are continuing in this series in 1 John, and it has been such a wonderful series to be able to go through it verse by verse and, and section by section, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and just to see uh, John's heart in this first epistle that he writes. And now the, the interesting thing about 1 John, and, and really John's writings in general, is that they are very simplistic. And what I mean by that is not that they're shallow, but that we can read them and we we get this feeling as if a father is training up and teaching his children. And of course, we, we see that because John actually addresses the people that he's writing to in some spots as my little children. And so we get that father's heart. We get that pastor's heart. We get that love that he has to express. But on top of it, and along with this, we also get that, that this book is so theologically deep that, that we can look at some simple phrases that, that he writes. For example, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is such a simple statement that we can understand. But when we actually look at the character and the nature of God and the character and nature of this fallen world, we can see how theologically profound that is. That God is high and lifted up, that he is holy, 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 that he is righteous, that he is just. And when we look at ourselves and we look at our sinfulness, we know that we are not and that we need to have this understanding because God has, has come near to us. He has sent His Son to take on flesh, to live the life that we should live and to die the death that we deserve, and that we can come to know Him in His revelation. And so it's a wonderful book, and I love that we're studying it, and, and thankfully we still have a little while to go, and I think it's going to be a wonderful thing 
for us to, to continue in that. But this week, as we uh, get kind of to the halfway point of chapter 3 here, it's actually a call back to another chapter. There, there's some repeated themes, and we know John does um, repeat and emphasize things in, in different ways. And it was, it was fun for me to, to be able to prepare for this, because I think what we're going back to is actually a, the, the sermon that I preached on this. So it, I, I got to cheat a little bit and look at my past notes and, and see what I wrote there. But we look back at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 7, That says this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So both in today's passage in chapter 3 and the passage back in chapter 2, we have this, this focus of love, but we also have this contrast of love and hate, light and darkness, good and evil, and focusing in on the church, the, the brethren, the, those who we would call brothers and sisters in Christ. And, it's, and John calls it a new commandment, but it's not actually new, because it's been from the beginning. It's just new in the presentation of it. See, when we look back at the law, when we look at the Old Testament and, 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 and the law that God has, had given to his people, we know that the summary of the law, that the law all points to love. Love is the end of the law. And so Jesus even said that all of the law and all of the prophets can be brought down into just the two greatest commandments, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, for these are the two great commandments. But it's new in its presentation because now we have a person who is love, the fulfillment of the law, and that is the God-man Jesus Christ. And he came to earth, he took on flesh, he fulfilled the law, and he taught this, this, this message of love. And so we defined love a number of, of weeks ago when I preached on, on 1 John chapter 2, where love is not approving of sin, love is not tolerating sin, but love is telling the truth. Love is uh, what God approves of, and God does not approve of sin. Now, this word love, as, as, as we have probably noticed throughout John's epistle, is very common in the language of John. And just in John's uh, letters alone, so we're not counting Revelation for just a moment, but just in his gospel, his first, second, and third epistle, John uses the word love, which comes in a few forms in the Greek, but we translate it as just love. But he uses love 110 times in just those four books alone. And so we can understand why John is, is called the disciple of love. That's one of the titles people tend to give him, is the disciple of love. And I think it's interesting as well 
that John, in his gospel, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you were writing uh, a gospel or a letter, wouldn't you want to refer to yourself as the one that Jesus loved? And it's also kind of funny, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's not really theologically deep in any, any way, shape, or form. But as they're on their way to the tomb, you know, Peter runs ahead, and then John has to, has to put something in there to show his own athletic ability. And he says, but the other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He showed his supremacy and his athletic ability in that. But we know that John is indeed the disciple whom Jesus loved, And he is the disciple of love in what he communicates in his writings. And he says this in verse 11, as we just read, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this call to love one another, we might ask, well, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the church. He's talking about us. And we're not just talking about this individual body of believers, and while that is included, but we're looking at the fullness, the, the entirety of believers around the world in the church. And now, worldly Christianity has uh, an interesting way of looking at this, and I, and I say Christianity lightly because it's not like you can really be a worldly Christian and still be a Christian, but I say that for lack of a better term. But the world will say this, if, if they're Christians, is, is I can have a relationship with Jesus. I can be a Christian and not have to go to church. Okay? Uh, we get that from a lot of celebrity Christians. Okay? Um, Justin Bieber is one of the people that was kind of famous for saying this whole, I can be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. It's this idea that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I can just I can go hide away in my room, open my Bible, and read two verses and see what God has to say to me there. I can say a little prayer and live my life normally. And while that's good, we should have a, a private life where we open Scripture and we read it and we meditate on it, where we should pray alone and, and communicate with God in that way. Uh, Jesus often went off, it says, to a place by himself in order to pray. So that's good, but that is not the Christian life. That's just an aspect that we should take uh, into consideration. But the Christian religion is not a private religion. The Christian religion is a very public religion. If we take the Great Commission seriously... Jesus says, go, first of all, go therefore into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we are to go out into the world. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, we can be in the world but not of the world. And of course, that's the only place we can be is in the world. We would have to leave this universe if we were to escape sin which we know is impossible. But the Bible tells us to gather together. The Bible never says that we can be a part of the family of God and then just push aside the rest of our family. The Bible tells us to gather. Do not forsake the assembling together. So it is a command. It is a biblical mandate that we have to gather. And we shouldn't take that for granted. As we sit here and we we have fellowship with one another, it is a wonderful and beautiful thing that we get to do this. But we also 
have this picture of Christ and his bride. That you cannot have Christ and reject and hate his bride. So if you're married here, even if you're not married, but you're looking to get married, it's, it's almost like somebody coming up to you and saying, man, you are an awesome person. You, you are just awesome. I love being around you. I love going out with you. I love hanging out with you. I love our chats together. I want to be a part of your life. I want you to be a part of my life. I want this personal relationship with you. But man, I hate your wife. She's so annoying. I, I've been hurt before. I've dated people before, and they've hurt me. I have past trauma. So I just, I, have, I, I want nothing to do with your wife. But I really, really want to spend more time with you. Okay? In my life, and in anybody's married life, you don't get me without my spouse. You don't get to separate that union that the Bible talks about to becoming one. But you get us as a package deal. In the same way, you cannot have Christ without his bride. You cannot love Christ and hate his church and hate the people who he calls his own. So, Like in chapter 2, we have this contrast of love and hate. And, and, and John literally here goes back to the beginning. He doesn't just say, this message is, is one that you've heard from the beginning. He literally goes back to the beginning. In verse 12, we see, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So he literally goes back to the beginning, and we, we have this picture of these, of these two groups that John emphasizes. You have good and bad. You have light. You have darkness. You have Cain and you have Abel. And we're told that Cain was of the evil one. And if you would for a moment, if you have your Bibles, let's look at that that story in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 3, where it says this, "...in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground." And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The story is from the beginning, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see creation, creation of the world, creation of man. We see the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, and then immediately after that, we have the results of the fall of man. We have what sin does to us. In John chapter eight forty four, Jesus says that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning, and Cain was of the evil one. Satan's assault on the righteous, Satan's assault on God has been going on from the beginning. Now, we don't know exactly 
why Cain's offering was not accepted. But we do know from verse 6 in this passage that Cain had no room for complaint. God said, uh, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So we have this implication that, that Cain knew what would be acceptable to him. Abel knew what was acceptable to God. And Cain could have done that, but he didn't. In Hebrews, it says that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice or a better offering to God. And then Jude 11, it said that they were like Cain, they had the spirit of Cain, abandoning himself for the sake of gain. What we do know about Cain was that his deeds were evil. If we go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we see it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. From this Genesis story, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must overcome it. Cain allowed his sin. He let his sin rule over him because he belonged to the evil one. Because his deeds were evil, he hated righteousness. He hated his brother. Now, Cain represents the world's attitude towards the righteous, towards the people of God. The world hates righteousness because righteousness condemns the acts of the world. Righteousness condemns unrighteousness. Righteousness condemns evil. And Jesus is the righteous one. And so, of course, the world hates Jesus. And the devil does the works in unrighteousness. He seeks to put to death the righteous ones. Now, Abel was put to death because Cain hated his brother because his brother was righteous. So Cain, so Cain rose up against him and killed his brother. But the thing was, Abel was not the son of promise. The devil's plan, as it always is, was thwarted by God because Seth was the one that God used to bring forth his Messiah to fulfill the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 of the crushed head. And we see leading up to this, the last couple of weeks, we've, we've heard some, some wonderful messages from Mr. Battiston and, and Pastor leading up to this. And really, the, the whole book, I, I kind of wish we could preach, take, you know, 20 hours and preach through the whole book at once because it really, it, it, it all flows together because it's amazing. It's like God inspired it to, to be that way. But we see in, in, in verse 4 of chapter 3 in 1 John, we just read, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. In verses 7 of eight and 8 in that same chapter, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. For whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Again, very simplistic terms with deep theological thought. And then verse 10 of, of chapter 3, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John has, uh, emphasizes love and hate in such a, a, a wonderful way. Uh, Longman and Garland, in their, in their commentary, writes, from John's dualistic perspective, those who do not love believers must hate them. 
the way Cain hated Abel, leading him to murder his own brother. This is the natural response from the world. The world hates righteousness. It's it's natural. In verse 13, it says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, I think John is is looking back at the words of Christ that that John wrote down in, in his gospel in chapter 15, verse 18, where Jesus says, If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Okay? Hatred from the world, opposition from the world, persecution from the world should be expected from the Christian. It should be something that we're not surprised to see. If somebody comes up and and says, you're stupid because you're a Christian, okay, try harder. You know, that, I, I, that's, that's what we expect. And, and John MacArthur um, gives us kind of this hard truth to think about. Um, it says, the more like Christ you are, the more the world will treat you like they treated Christ. Maybe you don't get much persecution because there's not much similarity. It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? The world will hate you if you love Christ. If the world loves you, if the world accepts you, if the world draws you in as one of their own, you may not be expressing yourself as a Christian the way you ought to. You may not be shining that light of Christ. You may not be the light of the world that you think that you are. Because the world will hate you for your faith. Uh, I've lost many friends, not from any kind of violence or, or, or argument that we've gotten into, but they just stopped talking to me because I'm not like them and they're not like me. And see, the thing is, we should be defined by love as Christians, but what does love look like to the world? What does Christian love look like to the world? Christian love to the world is going to look like judgment. Christian love to the world is going to look like we have it all right, and we do, and, and we're better than you, and, which we're not. We're all sinners. But it's this idea that we're, we're, we're putting the world under us, and we're saying we're better than you, but we can offer you a way to get up here and be better than everybody else too. But that's not the attitude that we should have. Christian love condemns sin. Christian love hates sin. We should hate the things God hates. But Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. So we, we love God, we love the church, but we also love those who hate us. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he shouted out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We live in the world, and we should be a light to the world. But understand that the gospel is what, bring, is what God uses to bring people to himself but we are to love them nonetheless. Now, the love for each other, the love for church, our brothers and our sisters in the faith, is one of the tests of faith that John writes about here. Um, Verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We have assurance of our salvation. God has given us Assurance. John starts this by saying, we know. We know that we have 
this assurance. We know that we have passed from death to life. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't have to, to uh, worry about if our works are good enough to please God, if our works ha- are of good have outweighed the works of bad, because that's not how this goes. We're saved by grace through faith. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so we can have that assurance of salvation. When, when our brothers and sisters, when, we, when they experience this passing from, from physical life to, to eternal life, we can have assurance based on their fruit, based on their testimony, that we can say they have received their reward. They are with their Savior. No other religion, no other thought can offer that kind of comfort where the Bible says that we do not mourn as the world mourns. We can weep, and we should. It's a natural thing. We weep with those who weep, and we mourn with those who mourn, but we also celebrate in the promises of God that he does indeed save sinners and brings them to eternal life. And see, we don't need to prove ourselves to the world. That's not what we're trying to do. But we do need to live by how God calls us to live. And we know that we've passed from death to life. This is the good news. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, where a lot of people like to think that dead just means, you know, uh, floating out in the water and, and screaming for help instead of being face down in the water, unable to help yourself. But Paul says you were dead. There's nothing you could do but God, who is merciful and gracious, chose some to save. And when God saves a sinner, when God calls them to himself, when he adopts a person, we cannot be taken out of that family. God loses none that are his. And so we know when we pass from death to life that we have life, and we have it eternal, and we have the assurance of that in the gospel. The state of man upon birth is dead and dying, so it's, it's this kind of paradox thing where you're dead, but you're also dying, okay? Where a, a Christian, somebody who's saved, we were dead, and now we're alive. Though our physical bodies will die, we will live forever and be raised up again um, at the last day. So the opposite of death is not life, but it's love. Okay? Again, in, in verse 14, in the last part, because Uh, We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides or remains in death. Hate, as we probably know, is a very easy thing to feel. And just look at the world right now. All you have to do is turn on the news, turn on social media, uh, just, just go out into the public square, and you will realize that it is very tempting and a very easy thing to want to look at hate. But look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, as we read not too long ago. It says, And you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to to the hell of fire. Church, we need to understand how serious hate actually is. And that's a word that that gets thrown around a lot. 
But to hate is to essentially murder someone in your heart. We see Jesus also talks about lust. That he says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. So don't commit adultery. That's a good start. But he says, but I say to you that anyone who even looks at somebody with lust has committed adultery with them in their heart. And it's the same kind of idea here that if you were to hate somebody, you're essentially in your heart saying, I wish they were dead. That's what true hatred is, is you wish that person was dead. You wish they were gone. You hate them. Uh, Like I said, we throw around that word a lot. Um, I'm a very, very, very picky eater. So there are a lot of foods that I say I hate, um, and maybe some of that's true. Um, But when it comes to things that I I really hate, and I'm, I'm working on my sanctification because all of God's creation is beautiful and wonderful. I just think spiders were tainted more by the curse than everything else. Um, They are terrifying, and I, I, I do not like them. But we need to be careful with how we use the word hate, especially when it comes to people, and especially when it comes to those who profess the name of Christ. There is no room for hatred of the brothers in a Christian Verse 15 of 1 John chapter 3 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The only thing we should hate is sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. And we could see other passages that, that are similar to that. But we should not love what put Christ on the cross. We should not love the things that God himself hates. We should hate sin. But hatred of the brethren is equal to murder and death. And in closing this morning, I want to talk about the the accumulation of the love for each other. And that comes in in the expression of, of forgiveness And the grace of God is a beautiful thing, and I don't say that in a general sense. I say that in in truly trying to understand and comprehend the grace of God and how beautiful and wonderful it is to be able to, to look at my own sin and to look at myself and to see just how ugly and disgusting it all is, but for God to extend a hand of mercy and to save me and to pull me from death to life is a truly awe inspiring thing. And especially when it comes to forgiving somebody who is worth hating. And that sounds like a strange statement, I think. But there are a lot of people, people have done a lot of things where I think we can say it's, it's worth hating. But the power of the gospel is loving. Because God can even take the worst sinner. And I mean, think of the worst thing imaginable. God can take the worst sinner who is truly repentant, who truly uh, loves God, and bring him into the fellowship of the church, and God says, you need to love that person. Even if you know the things that they've done, even if you know their sins, sins have consequences, absolutely, but God, when he saves somebody, does not count those sins against them, and neither should we. That That is how we should treat Believers, that is how we should treat each other. And this causes us to look at two things. The first thing is how God can and does forgive the worst sinners who seek him in repentance. And two, you and I are included in that. 
Because we are horrible, wretched, wicked sinners. And yet God saved you and me. As I said, the worst sinner who comes to faith in Christ, we are commanded to love that person, to call them brother or sister, to extend the hand of fellowship and forgiveness. And in all of history, other than the actual biblical characters, um, I think there's one person who I think is truly uh, the definition. Their, their life was defined by love in how they treated the worst sinner who is among her brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was a woman named Corey Tenboom. If you don't know who Corey Tenboom is, she's an incredible lady. She was arrested by the Nazis along with her family for hiding Jews. Okay, you've probably heard this story, many of you, but it's good to hear it again. Her and her sister Betsy sent to uh, Ravensbruck. I don't know my German well, but um, that's a, uh, an attempt. Uh, the concentration camp, and this is a. a, a Excerpt from her autobiography. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I have been had been arrested for concealing Jews in her home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man has been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where, I, where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men with their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there, with the coldness clutching my heart, for forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, 
bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Church, we are to love each other, regardless of past sins. If you are in Christ, your sins are not counted against you, and we should not count those sins against each other as well. We are a fellowship of believers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be unified with one another, because the world is already divided. If the world is already divided, how much worse would it be if those who claim Christ were to divide themselves, to be just like the world? So, brothers and sisters, I urge you this morning to take what John has to say here, to love one another. Do not be like Cain, who hates righteousness, but to love righteousness, to love one another, to come together in the unity that only God in Christ Jesus can supply Because there's no other worldview, there's no other religion that you would ever hear this story. Because we live in cancel culture. You do one thing that makes it out into the world, and for the rest of your life, you are evil. For the rest of your life, you are unforgivable because of one thing that you did to the world. The Christian message is not that. The Christian message is, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, but by the grace of God, I have a good and merciful and wonderful and kind Savior who took the punishment for me so that I can stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in the midst of other sinners, rejoicing and worshiping the one true God. In my final moment, I'll say this. Uh, one of my favorite quotes out there is that Paul entered heaven to the shouts of praise of those he martyred. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the testimony that the church has left us over these many, many centuries. The way that you have worked in the lives of your faithful people. Lord, we admit and confess that we are sinners, that there's nothing in us that is good except Christ. Father, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would take away any bitterness or hate that we might feel towards one another, Lord, and to look upon each other with love, the love of Christ, the love of brotherhood and sisterhood, the love that only your gospel can provide. And Father, I pray that you would uh, cause this to stick in our minds and our hearts, that as we enter back into a dark and dying world, that we can truly be the light, that we can uh, shine the light of Christ, that we can be the witnesses that you call us to be in this world. Now, Father, we're going to continue to worship you in song. I pray that it would be glorifying to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.